I am fantasy and paranormal romance author Leslie Penelope, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello friends, today is Saturday, November 26th, 2022, and this is episode 196 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So this week's best thing, Thanksgiving happened this week. Um, I also took my hair out, which is actually the best thing for my scalp this week. I don't know that I can do braids anymore. That might have been my last foray into the braids. I'm just too tenderheaded. But lots to be grateful for. And there's also other really great things that happened this week that I can't talk about, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, like sometimes in author worlds, there's things that happen and you can't talk about them. And I hate, I don't like to be like a tease, like, ooh, something great happened, but I can't tell you. I do try to be as honest and forthright as possible on the podcast, but contracts, things like that sometimes mean that, you know, before things are announced, I can't speak on them. But very cool things are on the horizon that I will be able to speak about one day. And I'm very, very grateful for them. This week was actually full of amazing things. Um, another really cool thing that happened, a reader contacted me about getting a tattoo of some of my words. And that's the first time that's happened to me. And I was just amazed, completely humbled, blown away. It's She wants to get a tattoo of um, one of the epigraphs from Song of Blood and Stone. And it's also doubly poignant because those epigraphs, those chapter epigraphs, were very difficult for me to write for a number of reasons. So every book in the Earthlinger Chronicles actually has these, at the, at the beginning of every chapter, there's an epigraph, which is usually taken from an in-world text. And Song of Blood and Stone, first book in the series, they were a suggestion from my editor. And I liked the suggestion. She referenced Octavia Butler, and I did other research on um, other, especially fantasy authors who were using in-world texts for chapter epigraphs to deepen the world building you know, to give you a little bit more at the beginning of every chapter. But what my editor did not know and what I did not share with her was that at the time that I was writing those, so I wrote them last after I'd finished the rest of the book and I had surgery and I didn't tell anyone I was having surgery. And so I think the book was due like two weeks after I had surgery. So I left the epigraphs. I'd written half of them before and the other half I wrote during recovery and I was like, oh, I'll be home. I'll be recuperating. I'll be just in the bed or on the couch. Because as it turned out, I couldn't walk up the steps of my house for a while. And uh, I was like, it'll be fine. You know, I'd had surgery before. And obviously, I had forgotten what recovery was like. It was not fine. I was on lots of oxy. I was in incredible pain. And I was trying to be creative and, you know, write these folk tales. So in A Song of Blood and Stone, the epigraphs are from the collected folk tales. And I don't remember at this point what happened. I know that looking back, I can't tell the ones I wrote before and, and, and the ones I wrote after. And I got them done. I finished. I turned the book in on time. And I realized that had been a huge mistake. <laughs> so I have to assume that I was tapping into some kind of higher power for some of those epigraphs. And maybe that is one of the ones that this, this woman chose for her tattoo. And also because the surgery I had, not to give like, not to be totally TMI, but I had to have a hysterectomy. I was 38 years old. And I had gone into it, you know, knowing I didn't really want to have children, but having that choice taken away and and kind of coming to grips with that as you're recovering from the surgery. And this was a, a month-long process. And the finality of that, 
you know, even even if it wasn't something I thought I wanted, it was always that small possibility. Oh, maybe I'll change my mind. You know, um, you know. Now, many years later, I'm very happily child free, very very grateful not to have any children. But you know, making the decision and having it chosen basically by your body <laughs> and by the need for uh, the surgery are two different things. And in that period of time, trying to write these folk tales that were not only connected to the story that I was writing, that was also, you know, a very personal story. I think your first book is always so much of you and your life goes into it. And that was definitely the case with Song of Blood and Stone. And also trying to have this sort of wisdom, you know, and I've talked about those epigraphs, those collected folk tales from that first book. They're supposed to be wisdom from the world that reflects the inconsistencies of the world and the conflicts of the world. And there's some things that I, I really believed and were real truth. And there's some other epigraphs that I hope people understand are not actual wisdom. And so I think she she chose one of the one of the good ones. Um, it's later in the book, so I think it actually was one of the ones I wrote uh, in an altered state of mind somewhat. So yes, it was extremely humbling and just really touched me. Um to get that note, to get that message. And it was also in line with something else that I've been thinking about in terms of having an impact. So we went to see uh, Black Panther Wakanda forever again for the second time this past week. It's a meditation on grief as much as it is a superhero movie. I started thinking about Chad, um, Chadwick Boseman, who you know, was Black Panther, passed away very tragically. And I'd been talking to my brother because both of us knew Chad. I knew him in college. My brother, after college, my brother's an actor. And so he had worked with him um, in theater. And we were kind of talking about his roles. And I was thinking how much he packed into his life in a relatively short period of time and how intense and focused he was even in college. And my brother was saying, you know, a lot of the roles he didn't get to show his actual personality. I mean, you're an actor. You're not going to show who you really are. But the sort of I think it comes through. I think maybe that's why he was so popular. There's a certain charisma that comes through. Just in having that conversation and thinking about the incredible impact he had. You know, the, the school, the College of Fine Arts at Howard University is named after him now. And he did so much work. He got every role. You know, my brother is up against him for some roles. and um, But you can't really be mad because Chad always did a wonderful job. He had such an impact. And thinking about like, what do we want as artists? That's the goal. That's the dream to have a real impact on people's lives, to to make them think, you know, to entertain them, but also to maybe give inspiration or give a little bit of hope, you know, and this woman with the tattoo, she talked about having, you know, just going through some really difficult times and reading that phrase that she decided to get tattooed on her really resonated with her. And to have something that I wrote have a real impact on people. Like I, whenever I get messages like that and they come in every so often, it puts everything into this bigger perspective of why we do this in the first place. And knowing your why is so important for setting goals, for knowing what to say yes to and what to say no to. I often get asked, how do I decide whether a project should be self-published or traditionally published? And usually my answer is genre and marketability and things like that. But also, and something that I probably should be saying more, is what kind of impact do I think this particular work can have? And what size stage do I want it to be on? You know, my reach with my self-published works is a fraction, a tiny fraction of my reach with my traditionally published works that have the opportunity to get more attention. I was invited to speak at schools. 
about the monsters we defy. There's a lot of opportunities that are coming to me that if that book had been self-published, it would have been a harder sell because of its genre. And I don't think that it would have had the stage that it's getting right now. And of course, that's not true for every traditionally published book, but the opportunity is there. You know, the opportunity is there in self-publishing for potentially more sales and more money, although it's very, very difficult and very few self-published authors make a lot of money. The opportunity is there with traditional published books for, you know, other things that might happen to bring it to a larger stage. And of course, it doesn't happen with everyone either. But, you know, thinking about my work that I want to have an impact that I think has the potential to, you know, bigger stories, bigger swings that, you know, it could be a miss, but if they're a hit, if I connect, then there's just that possibility that it could really grab someone and all the feedback that I'm getting for the Monsters We Defy is so amazing. And even, I mean, I get feedback on Savage City, which is self-published, that is a less amount of feedback, but I know people really connect and love that story. And I do too. I love everything that I write, but I do see some stories as, even though I'm dealing with themes that are important to me and ideas that I think are interesting that need to be um, delved into, they're still kind of smaller stories. And some, some stories are bigger than others in in scope in terms of the the swing that you're taking, like what you're trying to do with it, the Monsters We Defy is a bigger story. Savage City, while it's about sort of about like the nature of evil and love and, you know, having this, this tyrant father who's also a loving father, that was the thing that drew me to the story and made me want to write it. And the thing I'm still excited about, you know, when I look back at that book. Um, but it's still kind of a smaller story than than some of the others. These are just kind of the thoughts that I was going through as um, as the week went went by. Which brings me to the writing update. The follow-up to Savage City is Beastly Kingdom, which I'm working on. And still, still going through it, still walking through the weeds. You know, I had to think about what is the big idea that I'm dealing with in this book? If Savage City is about the nature of evil versus the nature of love, and how, how can they co- coexist even in one person? then what is Beastly Kingdom really about at its core? You know, I think that a trilogy, a series should have an overarching theme or energy that goes along with it. And so those questions are still at play. They're just at play in a different way. So I had been writing, I wrote a few scenes. And, you know, after kind of doing the work and what I talked about last week, getting unstuck. And then I, you know, hit another wall, hit another snag. The next thing was still feeling wrong after the couple of scenes that I wrote. So go back to the drawing board, continue trying to work through the issues that I was having. So this week, that meant addressing conflict. So I went to onestopforwriters.com, and they have a conflict thesaurus. And so I kind of just read through everything in the conflict thesaurus and made a list of all the possible conflicts that could happen in this book, from very big to very small. You know, I, was, I kept coming back to this quote that I have on a note card in my desk, which says, plot is externalized metaphor for character change, which means that plot is only there to force the character to change. I felt like my characters were still weak or I still didn't know them well enough. And so I went back to character once again. I think that plot problems are really character problems. I had, again, I have a um, an outline of things that could happen that I think are interesting and exciting and adventurous. But if they don't connect back to the character in the right way, then 
they're just things happening. And I felt like I was just writing things that were happening and they weren't motivated well enough. So I revisited Michael Haig's six stage plot structure, and I will link to this in the show notes to work on my character's arc. I had to really go back to the the studs on this one. I had to list out where this heroine, where she starts, where she ends, and what needs to happen to get her from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, from her, her state of mind at the beginning and to her changed state at the end. And then figure out what are the scenes that are going to force her to change. That's what the book is. That's what it's supposed to be, I think, in terms of well-structured popular fiction. I revisited Write Your Novel from the Middle, the book by James Scott Bell, which is about mirror moments. And I didn't know her mirror moment. The mirror moment is usually in the middle of the book where, you know, the character either literally or figuratively looks in a mirror, either reviews the obstacles set up against them or just takes a look at themselves and wonders, like, who am I and who am I going to be? And I still don't know the mirror moment yet, but I realized I didn't know it and I need to figure that out. That book also reminded me of the concept of death stakes. And every the stakes in your in your in your novel should be life or death. And there's three kinds of death that he talks about. There's physical death, psychological death, and professional death. So like in a detective story, it's more professional death. If they don't solve this crime, then their identity as a, a detective or a cop will be compromised. Most romance stories and most things I write are about psychological death. There's elements of physical death there, too, because I I try to do some kind of adventure in there. But ultimately, it's about, you know, if I don't change, then psychologically, I will be destroyed, you know, internally. And I just needed that reminder because I had forgotten that. I know the stakes of the story are on a larger scale. You know, it's about these two clans, and are they going to destroy each other? But on a personal, my main characters, they have to be afraid of psychological death on some level. Then I went to the story grid, and I did the fool's cap, which is sort of a version of an outline using the story grid methodology. And you take each act, and you look at the story grid components. So the inciting incident, the complication, the crisis, the climax, and the resolution. And listing those out for the three, you know, the beginning hook, the middle build, and the ending payoff, which are basically the three acts, was also really helpful. I know what happens at the beginning, and because I've written that, I know what happens at the end. And the middle, starting to write the middle has just been a struggle. Everything I try to write didn't feel right. So listing it out in this way, looking at it from a different perspective, from a different plotting system, was super helpful. And I just, I listed out some things that I was like, oh, okay, well, this is what happens. And this leads to this. It helped me get the cause and effect chain. Just thinking of it as the plot complications of the middle build, which I mean, it seems like I had done that before in different systems, but different terminology, a different tab in my spreadsheet. It's a different color, a different font. Like my brain was able to just view it from a different perspective. So that helped a lot also. Then I went back to the note cards and continued writing other scenes that could possibly happen that, you know, would take the story in a different direction, different paths. But um, maybe it needs to go in that path. Like whatever I had planned so far is still not working. So I went and did that. Did some more brainstorming and I was able to write a little bit more. I wrote another brand new scene that I had kind of actually moved a scene. It was going to be 
the midpoint of the novel. I moved it up to the break to act two. So 25% earlier in the book, it had to change a slightly different form, but the, the actions were kind of the same. That leaves me without a midpoint now. <laughs> I have to figure out what, what, what that's going to be. I still don't know. But I feel like the scene I wrote, I really liked. I think it fits there. And it's doing character work and it's setting up the characters for their journey in Act 2. So I did a lot of work on my heroine's character. And then I looked at the hero and what his actions were going to be. Because the next scene I was writing was from his perspective. And I realized, oh, he's wrong. Something's wrong. The Enneagrams that I had for him were wrong. Enneagrams are the nine personality types that I use often to do my characters. It's kind of like Myers-Briggs or any other kind of personality test that you can do. There's nine types. My hero originally was going to be a four. I realized that's not right. He's actually a six. My heroine was supposed to be a three, but I think she's really a one. And I'll link to something about Enneagrams. You can see, you know, the different types. But... I did a lot more Enneagram work after I realized that that the things I had assumed were wrong, which is really interesting because the hero of this book, Shad, appears in book one. You know, we don't get any of his POV to the very last, you know, uh, epilogue, the very last scene, but I felt I knew him really well. I had done a character builder profile on him pretty in depth. I hadn't finished the whole thing, but I did it like in March and I had forgotten I did it. So I went to do another one. I was like, oh, I did this before and I should have like reread it, of course. Some of this is like doing lots of work and then forgetting you did it and it's gone out of your head. Although I do think that doing the work, it's it puts it in your brain somewhere. It might not be conscious, but it was in the subconscious enough that I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I had to go back and find the work that I'd already done that helped me clarify what was wrong in the scenes that I was writing. So I picked the new Enneagrams. I did a bunch of reading online um, from various, there's lots of Enneagram sources out there just to get ideas about, okay, what are these traits? It it was like, he was right in my mind. He wasn't right on the page. It's hard to explain where exactly had gone wrong. But like, once I went back to my character builder profile that I had written, I was like, oh, no, this is him. This is right. I just need to tweak some things. I learn more when I'm doing the drafting. I get deeper into him. So I guess he was right on the page. On the page, like the qualities were there. The decisions he was making were in line with the actual proper Enneagram type. They weren't in line with what I thought he was supposed to be. And there was some tension there. Because I think the, the clarity comes out in the writing, even if I can't articulate it. But at the same time, sometimes I can't do the writing until I understand and can articulate the character stuff. So it works so much hand in hand. And I might be able to take a step forward with something being wrong, and then I have to fix it. And then I can take another step and realize, oh, no, something else is wrong. And then I have to fix that. And that's kind of the way it's been going. The last thing that helped this week was doing the sacred flaw for both of my characters. And this is a concept I got from the book, The Science of Storytelling by Will Storr, which I also recommend. I made a little worksheet about it. And so we think about character flaws. I usually think about it in terms of the lie that the character believes in. My heroine's lie is that love is conditional. I'm only worthy when I achieve great things. So she's a soldier. She, because of her sort of childhood dramas, she really believes that she needs to achieve in order for anyone to value her. So that's kind of the flaw. But the way that he approaches it in the science of storytelling is that for the character in her mind, her flaw is her greatest strength. For such a long time, 
thinking this way has been beneficial. And so the questions in that book make you think about it from that perspective. As the writer, knowing that this character needs to change, I see her as having the flaw. She sees it as a strength. And so rewording it so that it's a strength makes you see it from the character's perspective and understand how she's acting until she has to change. So some of the ways he phrases the questions are, the thing I most admire about me is blank, or the secret of happiness is blank. The best thing about me is blank. So like how you would use that is my hero's uh, lie, for example, is he believes I'm defective. I'll never be good enough. And that pushes him towards always striving harder, trying harder. He's like a try hard, you know. In the sacred flaw philosophy, one of the questions is the best advice anyone ever gave me was. So for him, his best advice anyone ever gave him was duty is more important than personal connections. If he believes that he has to do his duty before anything else, then you can see how that would have his personal connections be very weak and shallow. He's always trying to protect himself from feeling vulnerable. But this is what he thinks is his superpower because he's very dutiful and loyal. And his new Enneagram is number six, the loyalist. But that causes a breakdown. It's out of alignment. And in a romance, he can't fall in love while he's in this false identity. So even though he believes it's his greatest strength, and he has some evidence behind that in his life so far, it's not going to get him through this story's challenges. Duty and striving hard are just not going to be enough. He's going to need to create these personal connections. He's going to need to deepen them, to feel more vulnerable, overcome that fear of being isolated and not having support of being vulnerable, of failing others in order to get the prize, which is love in romance, and also win the day and, you know, complete the story goal, overcome all the obstacles in the plot. And that is where I have ended up. So I'm going to need to do a little bit more brainstorming for the next scenes, figuring out how to get from this new scene that I wrote to the scenes that I already have planned. And there's a gap there. There's a sort of a logical and emotional gap. And then also figure out how to ensure that the scenes are all laser focused on the character growth and that kind of push-pull, the try-fail cycles of maybe not knowing that they have to change yet, but doing things the old way and running into obstacles and then having to navigate those obstacles by being forced to change. (sighs) Writing is hard, y'all. It is not easy. Final announcement, the HB90 Bootcamp, which is a planning course for writers and other creatives. Its registration is open now. It's open until December 11th if you want to plan your Q1 of 2023. Um, This is a a course that I took a while ago. I'm probably going to refresh myself on the videos this time because I haven't done that in a while. But I do want to try to plan my quarter. I don't always plan quarters. I rarely actually do it now. But even though I don't do everything the class uh, says, still very, very helpful. I do have an affiliate link for the course if you're interested. It's in the show notes. Um, Sarah Cannon, who's an author and YouTuber, holds this. Lots and lots of authors have gone through it. Everyone I know personally, (laughs) not everyone, but so many authors have, have found benefit through this method. And so if you'd like to plan, check out the show notes for the link. Look up Heart Breathings and Sarah Cannon to find her HB90 uh, boot camp. And yeah, let's let's plan Q1. That'll be one of the things I will probably talk about as I'm doing it next year. Other announcement, just planning ahead. 
We're coming up on episode 200 pretty soon. And in order to align the calendar better, and just to give myself a break, I'm going to take off from podcasting the, the last two weeks of the year and come back in January with episode 200 and slightly revamped, which just means I have a new logo. If you've been to myimaginaryfriends.net, you will have seen it. You can go there now and see it. Because I'm doing the course, I'm planning the course as we speak. I know I haven't talked about it because I haven't done much this week, but <laughs> it's still happening. And I want to have the course under the My Imaginary Friends sort of brand. I wanted a new logo. I thought it was time. It's been a few years. And yeah, I'm excited about that. I mean, the podcast is not really going to change. I'm trying to keep, to focus it a little bit more and um, just like have better titles and cleaner like content topical focuses, even as I'm still rambling on and on about what happened to me that week. So that's what's in the plan. That's what I'm working on and testing out and trying. And I hope you will still be around to join me. Goals for the coming week. I have a writing retreat coming up this week. I'm very excited about it. I will tell you more next week. And get more writing done. Also planning for the course. Um, I don't want to, you know, bite off more than I can chew, which I have a tendency to do, but definitely, definitely writing. And I'm expecting feedback from my editor sometime soon, next couple of weeks on the Black Towns book. So we'll see how that goes, trying to work on two at once or not work on two books at once as the case may be. But yeah, I hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope that you have a wonderful week coming up and I will talk to you next week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriends.net. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. You can email me at podcast at lplb.com. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts.